Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. If you missed last Sunday or if you're new to our church, um, I kicked off a new series. It's going to be six messages, and we built off of the imagery of a bungee cord hooked to Randy Moy's belt. Not Randy in particular because he's the only one with an issue, but it's a visual image that I think resonates with a lot of people describing what it feels like for us spiritually. Uh, That image of a bungee, as he walked further away from me, um, tension increased. And it got to a point where, because the cord was hooked to him, he couldn't walk any further. And at the height of that tension, if you remember, it was impossible for him to move, and it took all his effort just to remain in place where he was. And I think that's the way... Spiritual life, faith, feels for a lot of people here today. That we're going through the right motions, our desire, our motive is there, we want to feel differently, but something in us feels like it has gone cold, or it feels like something invisible is always fighting against every desire we have to walk forward in our faith journey. So that it's as if a cord is literally hooked to the belt of our soul, And we are anchored in place and unable to break free. And we're not sure why that is. We may read the Bible. We may have signed up for the Bible reading program and found that each morning when we open it, we're just feeling numb. We're like, what's going on? I pray and I start wrestling with sleepiness. I listen to this preacher and I have no idea what he's talking about. And I turn on Moody and it just irritates me how cheery everybody is on that radio station. And there comes a point where we can't figure out why I feel numb in my heart, even though I want to grow. And we understand that that dynamic is because, in the end, Christianity is not really just a religion. It's a relationship with the living God. And when we feel like something is wrong in our faith, It's because something is wrong with that relationship. Every spiritual issue is ultimately a relational issue. Okay, let me say that again. Every spiritual issue or breakdown is ultimately a relational issue or breakdown. It's not that we've done something bad or wrong in and of itself, but that that bad or wrong thing has violated a very important relationship we're meant to have with God. And that is why we're experiencing what we're experiencing in our faith. You know, I I think maybe growing up in the West, we think too mechanically. We think of ourselves as machines, and we are living in a cause-effect system. And if you do this, then that consequence will come. And that's the way we frame life even for our children if we have them. But the truth is, life is one giant web of relationships. Relationships drive everything in the world. And if we fail to see that, we will try to repair mechanically what can only be repaired relationally. Last week, we looked at how unforgiveness is one of those cords that needs to be cut. When we cannot or will not forgive another person, it signals that somewhere along the way we've forgotten that forgiveness is the way that we started a relationship with God in the very beginning. 
that I have no relationship with God except that he saw me and forgave me when I did not deserve forgiveness. I have never in my life been a good enough person to deserve or earn that forgiveness. I've never in my life done enough good things to earn God's favor. The only reason I can stand before God is because he first forgave me and opened the way for me to have a relationship with him. And when we're unable or unwilling to forgive others, it's a, it's a signal that somewhere along the way we lost sight of how we relate even to God. And if that's the way we treat our brothers and sisters, it stands to reason that it's going to put some barrier between our relationship with God, who loves all people at the very beginning by the way of forgiveness. Now, I know that the people you don't want to forgive or you're unwilling to forgive have done really bad things. But we have to really take a hard look at what the gospel says about the heart of God and about what it says about us. And if we want to move forward in faith, we have to cut that cord of unforgiveness. It's not an easy thing to do. It's easy to hear it. It's very easy to say it. But it is the cord that is holding some of us back from flourishing and thriving in our faith. And I want to continue asking you to be prayerful about reflecting on that. To what extent has unforgiveness put a serious barrier between me and God and me and others? This morning, I'd like to look at the second bungee that we need to cut. And I'm not suggesting we all have six bungee cords pulling us every which way. Not all of these may be your issue. You may not even have an issue. You may be dancing through the tulips of faith just every day, you and Jesus like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before the fall. Maybe that's what you're experiencing. I hope so. And if that's the case, don't let me discourage you. You have no cords holding you back. You are flying, and we're going to all cheer you on and look at you with holy envy. Okay, and I mean that. There are people living in that place right now. I'm so grateful for that. But if you have this experience of something holding you back, be really attentive to this series, because I think you're going to discover some of these things are actually responsible for where you are in your heart. This morning, we're going to look at cutting the cord of idolatry. Because idolatry is one of those things that puts a serious, serious barrier between you and the one true living God. When you hear the word idol or idolatry, what kind of images does it evoke? I was trying to find, um, I, I was trying to Google images of idol and American idol stuff just kept coming up. But uh, how about this? These are, I think, some Greek Neolithic um, terracotta figurines that were gods, ancient idols from around 6,000 B.C. in Thessaly. Or maybe you think of something more like this. This is a little more recent, a couple thousand years old. It's a stone carving of an idol in, uh, it's a Celtic thing, in Northern Ireland. And we picture things like this when we hear idol. Some inanimate objects carved out of wood or stone, around which, with like that Jumanji drumbeat, and we, we picture primitive ancient people <laughs> running around, cutting up you know, virgins and things, and just making mindless sacrifices, hoping that their crops will come in this year, the cows will stop getting sick. That's what we think of often when we conjure up images of idolatry, is it's what unenlightened, pre-rational era people did to make sense of their universe. 
But the truth is, idol worship is not just something relegated to the ancient past. Idols are still very much being worshipped today. In fact, I would even say, I prefer these idols, because these idols show their faces. They're easy to spot. And in fact, a lot of the heroes of the faith, historically, came into places where idols were worshipped, and they took sledgehammers, and bam! I mean, picture that. Like, picture some dude coming up here and just whacking a cross off our stage or something. They did it and said, if your God is stronger than my God, let him smite me for doing this. And they proved the worthlessness of idols because it was easy. When you go, that thing that you carved, didn't your Uncle Joe whittle that with his own knife? That cannot be the thing you worship. And they would smash it. The idols that we worship today hide in the dark corners of our heart. They're invisible. And they lie to us. And then the idols in our hearts cause us to lie to ourselves and to the others around us so that it's really hard to locate idols today, but they're still worshipped and they are everywhere. At the heart of idolatry, when you look at a symbol like this, I understand the motivation that drives a human being to carve something like this and bow to it. On the one hand, I'm an enlightened science-era human being. I think, why would you carve something out of stone and then bow and worship it? I get it, though, because at the heart of idolatry is one motive. It's to bring what is far away and invisible near. It's to make, make something feel real that does not feel real. When you talk about spirits, animistic spirits, supreme beings, deities far away, even the God we worship now, there are times when he feels far away, invisible. And there's such a yearning in the human heart not to worship an idea or a deity that lives in another dimension, but to worship something that feels tangible right here. An idol basically is our gods made tangible. Do you see that? It's something I can touch, something I can measure, something I know is either happy or sad with me, is creating good favor or bad favor for me. And these Ancient primitives who carved these stone idols are operating on the same thing we are whenever we want something to give us security, to give us meaning, purpose, worth. That isn't the word, the voice, the affirmation of a God who is invisible, but something more tactile, more tangible, more here and now. When you ask a person, what are you worth? It's much easier for them to say, well, I'm worth about $40 million. That's tactile. It's tangible. It's measurable. But I I don't want to know your net worth. I want to know what are you worth. That's a deep question, man. I don't know what I'm worth. I don't know who I really am. Those are questions that are messy. They're hard to determine. They require a voice other than my own. And do you understand that that's the reason we're so often drawn to idols is because these things are controllable, measurable. They're right here now. I can touch them. I can point you to my bank account and say, that is my worth. That is what I pursue. And the more it grows, the better I feel about the life around me and my own self. And so at the heart of idolatry is this idea that God is invisible and far away and somehow we are going to bring him down here to live with us. In a second letter to to the uh, church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul wrote these words. What union can there be between God's temple and idols? 
For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Do you realize as Paul's writing this, probably around the year 50 AD, that he's quoting Leviticus 26 from Israel's ancient history. It's from hundreds and hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, from the time that God began revealing himself verbally to his people, he has always had this heart. His heart has always been that I am near to you. I want to be near to you. I'm not a God in another dimension, impossibly far away. I have always been the God who wants to live in you and walk among you. In the Garden of Eden, that's exactly what Adam and Eve enjoyed before they were kicked out because of their sin. It says in the cool of the day, God and Adam walked together in the garden. They, they talked to each other. They saw each other. And we know, because we live in the time after Jesus, that when Jesus came to the earth, it was the ultimate expression of the heart of a God who wants to come down. Do you know there are two kinds of dads? There's a dad who goes, you come here, come up here to where I am. And the other kind of dad who goes, I'm coming down here to you. I love those dads who kneel down, get dirty, and say, hey, I'm going to look at you, eye level with you, not you come up here to me. And the heart of our God has always been, he comes near, he draws near. I know it doesn't always feel that he is that, that close, but we can never mischaracterize God as saying, why do you do this to us? Why do you enjoy playing games with us, hiding from us? It is never the heart of God to do that for no reason, because he just likes Screwing with people, messing around. I think I'm going to make you thirst for like 20 years before you find me. That is not the heart of our God. It's never been. Always, he says, I want to be near you. I want to walk among you. I want to actually have a relationship with you. And God is the one pursuing it. We make idols because we believe God is far away and we want to worship something closer But the truth is, God has always been very close. And if we pursue him, look for him, find him, we will not have need of anything more real because God will be the most real person, the most real figure, and the object of our worship. Look at what God himself says, Exodus 34, 14. You must worship no other gods. For the Lord, whose very name is Jealous, is a God who is jealous about his relationship with you. I'm not sure when the word jealous became like an accusation. You know, you hear it in movies all the time. What, are you jealous? Now, it's not a good thing to be jealous of like, I, I, I look at somebody else's basketball skills and I'm like, I'm jealous. And I burn with envy. I don't think that kind of jealousy is a godly or healthy thing. If I look at the way Heath can draw pictures, I'm like, I'm jealous. I wish I could. I don't think that's healthy. But there's a kind of jealousy that is valid, that is righteous. If you start flirting with my wife, and then you look at me like, what, are you jealous? I'm like, yeah, I'm jealous. That's my wife. Get off. Step back, son. You don't want this. Now, that doesn't sound or even look a little bit scary coming from me, but that's my heart is I suddenly become eight feet tall and 300 pounds of muscle, 
If you, and when you say, are you jealous? Darn right I'm jealous. That's my wife, not yours. She belongs to me and I belong to her. We are exclusive. This is not an open marriage. And what you're doing evokes a righteous anger in me because I have a zeal for her. She is mine, rightfully so. And I don't want to see somebody else wooing her heart, pulling her towards him, because that is not okay with me. And when God says he's jealous for his relationship with us, that's what he's saying is he has always wanted a relationship with us, but not a casual Facebook friends relationship, but an all-in covenantal relationship. The kind that runs so deep there isn't much left for another. And what he says is, do not try. You wouldn't have to command this if people didn't try it, okay? That's one thing you've got to learn about scriptures. God only commands against things people have tried to pull off. Do you see that? So <clears throat> there's no signs in parking lots that say, please don't drive at full speed into our wall. Because you don't need to warn people. Not Nobody's trying to do that. But here he says, don't try to worship other gods while you try to worship me. That's really what this command is about. It's not just don't be a non-Christian. It's don't try to worship other gods and worship me at the same time, which is why he's invoking the word jealous. Because the God who has laid out everything for us is not okay with us saying, God, you're awesome, and that stuff is awesome too. We want to love you both. Do you understand at the heart of this, it's showing that idolatry is not just moral or religious violation. It's the violation of a relationship and one that's meant to be exclusive and covenantal and very deep. In fact, when God talks about what it feels like, and this is so interesting to me, God doesn't just describe how things are. He often talks about how he feels. Isn't that remarkable to think about? How many of you had grown up, and you don't have to raise your hand, but some of you grew up in homes where your father, your earthly father, never once talked about his feelings. If you ask, if, if someone were to ask you at school, how's your dad feeling? I don't know if he even knows how he's feeling. I don't think he has feelings. He hasn't once described an emotional moment in his life. Our heavenly father constantly tells us, here's how I feel. He even says, here's how you make me feel. And he often did it through prophets, men who were raised up, possessed by the Spirit of God, so that when they spoke, they spoke as the earthly mouthpiece for the Spirit of the living God. And there was a prophet who, (laughs) I don't know if this is a great job, but it was his calling. He got to hear some of the greatest laments and complaints of God for his people, and he had to give voice to them. And you can't help it. When a preacher tells you something, you always feel like it's not just God talking to the preacher, it's that guy also talking at us. And shut up already, who are you? Uh, That's what happened to this guy named Jeremiah. He kept having to stand up, really, Lord? Don't you have like one encouragement to give something? These people hate me. He goes, no, go and say these words. In Jeremiah 3, at the very early part of his ministry, here's what he has to say to Israel and her sister Judah. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, 
she defiled the land and committed adultery with what? Stone and wood. What God says is, as they once knew him, the living God, they also hedged their bets by carving idols out of wood and stone, just like the people all around them in the lands that they had occupied. Why not? Why not play both sides? Why not hedge your bets? Why not live a godly life and a good life? A comfortable life. And as they made their their idols of wood and stone, he doesn't speak in the language of a king who is coming with vengeance. He doesn't come in the language of a governor who says, you ha- a judge who says, you have violated the law, you're going to jail. Listen to the language he uses to describe what he felt when he looked at their idolatry. He says, it's as if I were the husband and you have committed adultery. I don't know if you've ever experienced adultery on the committing or the receiving end, but I've witnessed it, and it is heart-rending. It takes something that's supposed to be whole and just rips it apart without any kind of ceremony. It is the most awful thing to watch. It rips apart a human being. And what God says is that's what it feels like to know that I have made my whole being available to you, and you chased after stone and wood. And I'm not saying this to scold. I'm saying, look, if you feel like you don't know why you can't move forward in your relationship with God, if there is an idol in your life, hidden or not, doesn't it stand to reason that that's going to hold you back in your desire to walk with Jesus Christ? In an even starker revelation through the prophet Ezekiel, this is such personal language. God says to Israel, you adulterous wife, you actually prefer strangers to your own husband. That is not legal language. It's not military language. It's it's the language of personal betrayal, of a broken heart. And what God is trying to say is, when we commit idolatry, it doesn't make him angry so much as it breaks his heart. There's always anger if you're on the receiving end of adultery, but that anger is the sharp, prickly side of deep sadness and pain and loss. The greatest emotion we feel when our partner has cheated is not anger. That's when, after the pride is kicked in, that's what happens. But the first and strongest emotion is grief. It's heart sickness. It's the, the greatest betrayal of adultery is not just that I've lost you, but you gave yourself willingly to another. That's the part that hurts. Because leading up to that betrayal is a lot of withdrawing from me, too. You did not give yourself to me in any way, emotionally, physically. And then you gave yourself willingly to another. And that's really what pierced my heart. See, the kind of love that God wants to have with us is not a casual, part-time love. It is an all-in, everything love. It is rich and fulfilling, and it causes us to flourish when we enjoy it. But if we try to dabble in something else, 
we lose the full benefit of that great love. Jesus said something similar. In Matthew 6, 24, it appears that he's talking about money and materialism. And on the face of it, yes, he is. But he's also teaching us about idolatry and about faithfulness and betrayal. And he says, you cannot serve two masters. That's a theme throughout the Bible. And he keeps warning us because we keep trying, don't we? We keep trying. I want God and something else. I, I always want God and something else. A middle-class life, a carefree life, a life without stress and pain, whatever. But I just want Jesus and. And he says, you can't do it. You cannot serve two masters. And he's not saying you shouldn't, you're not permitted to. He says, it's not possible. Not when both masters want everything. You will hate the one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. That means you will emotionally feel something for one and lie to the other one. You will give everything of yourself to one and lie to the other. You cannot love or serve both God and money. And that the word money is not really dinero. It's mammon. It's a very interesting word that says it's everything else. Everything material that's not God but which feels very godlike in its power, its ability to make me feel okay with my circumstances. And I'm not going to lie to you. When I look at my bank account at the start of the month after payday, and when I look at it at the last day of the month, and I get these chase alerts, which are just annoying little things. I, I don't normally even think about money until my chase alert goes, hey, here's how little you have now. I'm like, oh, that's concerning. I'm glad Jeannie handles the finances because how do we get from that big amount to the... It's just magic how fast money leaves you. And it feels safer, better, right after payday than at the end of the month. It wouldn't be an idol if it felt terrible. Okay, It wouldn't. So Jesus says this Foolish attempt to play both can never work because both want everything. Can you imagine if a married man falls in love with another woman? And he says to his wife, man, I love this other woman, but I love you too, babe. I want to make things work with us. You are, you are my first. You're the, you're the important one. And he starts buying her flowers. He takes her on trips again. He's romantic. He's spontaneous. He's doing everything right. And he goes, I don't get it. What's with you? You're as cold as ice. I'm like the husband of the century up in here. I've done everything. What is wrong? She goes, what are you kidding me? Being a husband is not some skill set where you do X, Y, and Z and get, you buy me flowers, you, you get me gifts, you take me on trips. That other woman is the problem, you idiot. I can't get over that. You're being so good to me. But I don't want just you to be good to me when it's my turn. I want you to be good to me exclusively. I don't want you to have her at all in your life. And she's thinking, when are you going to leave that woman? When are you going to get a divorce and come be with me? I'll rock your world. He's like, oh, you know, I can't. The kids, uh, 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 uh. And he's trying to pull off this ridiculous thing 
that says there's enough of me for two people. And that might be true if you were Mormons and there was a culture there and everyone's like, okay, we're all coming into this eyes wide open. But that's not the situation. Both of those lovers want all of you. How far can you get? And could that man then say to his wife, why are we drifting apart? Why does it feel different now? How come we're so cold with each other? How could he possibly ask such a question when the answer is right in front of him? Because the other woman. That's why. Sometimes we think that though we're doing everything right with God, he's being coy, he's being difficult, he's running far from me. But what I hope the Holy Spirit will reveal to some of us today is that it's not about God running from you, hiding from you, being coy, but he's saying, I have always given you all of me, I have always wanted all of you, but your heart is given to someone or something else. It could be an idea. It could be a piece of unfinished business from your history. It could be a material object, another person. It could be anything hidden in the dark crevices of your heart. But it has had the effect of pulling your heart away from your true lover, your beloved. That is in part one of the great losses in adultery is not just that you give yourself to another, but that you give less of you to the one who deserves it most. You cannot love well, love completely the one you gave your heart to because you have now given your heart to another. So the Apostle John writes in 1 John 5, 21, in this loving pastoral voice, Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. That place that God wants in your heart is not meant to be shared with another. He wants all of it because he wants to give you all of himself. And that is the way that he wants that relationship to work. And pastorally, John looks at a flock that is trying to pull off what human beings have tried to pull off since the beginning of our awareness of God, is I want to have God and something else. Aside God. Could it be that the stagnancy, the drag, the coldness that you feel at times in your faith walk is not because you're not doing right things for God or that God is trying to be difficult and evasive, but that somewhere in the depth of your heart there is another lover, another thing which has taken the place of God. And it's so subtle, it's so hidden, you're not even sure it's there. I'll close with this. One of the most helpful books, I think, written on the subject of idolatry in modern times is a book called Counterfeit Gods by Pastor Tim Keller, um, who used to be lead pastor over at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And Dr. Keller, in this book, Counterfeit Gods, writes to a very thoroughly American audience. And he says, when you think idle, here's how they affect you. And then the helpful part of this book, I thought, was here's how you locate your idols. 
Here's how you locate your idols. I, know, I love that way he phrased it. How do you locate your idols? Because the idols that we worship today don't sit out in a field made out of stone. They're not six feet tall. They are whispers in the quiet of our heart, in the recesses, and they control us with thin, silky threads. He offers a couple perspectives. I'll read you a couple excerpts from his book. In one, he says, A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity, then it is an idol. In short, what he's saying is, you can locate your idol by finding that thing which is so anchored to your sense of happiness and well-being that if you lost it, you could not bear that loss. That if you lost that thing and God still remained, it wouldn't be enough. You know, if you have a job that defines you and you get fired and your wife says to you, honey, but I'm still here with you. You're like, what is that supposed to, is that supposed to make me feel better? I just lost my job. And she's like, I can't get your job back, but I'm right here. And what he's saying is, yeah, but uh, cold comfort, that is not enough. Because what I really want is that job back. That's how you locate what your true love is, is that when that thing's taken away, all the other things that remain are not enough. What is that thing, maybe, in your life that you cannot bear the thought of losing because then even if everyone and everything else remains, there's no coming back. Here's another way to locate your idols. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something. But perhaps the best one is worship. In other words, what he's saying is, you locate your idols by finding that thing which you truly believe in your heart of hearts, if you get it, everything will be okay. And in fact, you're so convinced that it takes the highest priority and any cost necessary. And what he says is that's what we actually call worship, is when you pursue something with such complete conviction that it takes all priority and at any cost possible, you will get it. So you locate your idols by thinking about what you have anchored your happiness to and what you're willing to pursue at all costs and with all priority. In other words, you locate your idols by finding that which your heart worships. I mentioned earlier that the great betrayal of idolatry, just like adultery, is that it takes so much of us away from the worship of the one true living God who deserves everything from us. It leaves us saying we're worshiping him, but what we're doing is half measures and motions that are empty. It's the way anybody who's cheating on their spouse keeps up the illusion at home while they have a dalliance on the side. They still come home at 5 o'clock, they still mow the lawn, they still change the garbage bags. They do all of it, 
but there's no soul in it. There's no heart. They are a dead man walking in their own house. And it, it's possible that because in your heart you have given your heart to someone or something else, there's just less of you to truly give God the worship that builds a relationship with him. Pastor Keller offers this, this parting advice. The way forward out of despair is to discern the idols of our hearts and our culture. But that will not be enough. The only way to free ourselves from the destructive influence of counterfeit gods is to turn back to the true one. I think that's a great place to end this morning. I don't know if we can pretend that the idols that have gripped our hearts are not beautiful, are not enticing, don't do something for us. But the way back from idolatry, the way to cut the cord is first and foremost to return with all your heart to the true God, the one who at one point in our lives actually opened our eyes, captured our hearts. I invite the worship team to come back up. I want to invite you as we close out here to do a little reflecting. And I say this very seriously because I don't know if anyone else has any business naming your idols. Oh, we all have theories about one another. Don't get me wrong. If we decided to play that game, which I foolishly attempted once... Wear a white T-shirt and have others with magic markers write down what they think. <laughs> you know, I think we all know, oh, okay, I think I know what their idol is. I know what, I've never seen them more mad than when they do this. I've never seen them smile more than when they get this. We know what their idol is. You've got to imagine that my idol has a little fruit-shaped logo somewhere near it. That's just being silly, but of course, we have ideas about one another, but none of us knows anybody else's heart. And the truth is, and the Bible agrees here, we don't even know our own hearts very well. Our own hearts are deceitful beyond imagining. Our hearts lie even to us, which is another way of saying we lie to ourselves a lot. So if you want to know if you have an idol, if that's what's behind this coldness, this stagnancy you feel in your heart you're not really going to be able to find that just on your own God's got to help us because our hearts lie and idols don't want to be exposed they have their greatest effect when they remain hidden out of sight I feel so burdened about this that today as we reflect the Holy Spirit He's the only one who can do it which shine a light of truth on your heart. And if there is an idol lurking there, he would gently but firmly expose that to you so you could let go and return to him with your whole heart. So I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit now to really come and talk to you. Let's invite him in and just sit in reflection, listening for a short time. And then... We will close out the service with a song.
Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.